Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Please be seated. Isn't it great to praise the Lord together? What a blessing and what a gift. We're told that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He lives amongst us and our praise. And if that's not reason enough to praise him, what else can I think of? What else can you think of that would justify praising God? But it's easier to praise God in some times than it is in others. It's easy to praise him on a Sunday morning as long as you get up and have your first cup of coffee and you can get here and we can praise God together. Maybe it's not as easy on a Monday morning. Maybe it's not as easy when you're going to a big meeting or facing a big decision or you or a member of your family is going through a crisis or a challenge or a, a serious illness. Those times, it might not be easy to praise the Lord, but it's just as important that we do. We need to learn to sing the song of victory in the storm. And the thing about storms in our lives is we're either in one, coming out of one, or about to go into one. So we need to learn these important, not survival skills, but thriving skills as the people of God, because no matter what we're going through, God is always worthy of our praise. So why should we stint our praise and our worship because we're going through a situation, and, and we, must, we must avoid the error and the temptation of judging God, evaluating God based on what we're going through. Evaluating and judging his worth based on what we're going through. Because as we see in scripture and as we'll see this morning, God prepares us. He plans for and prepares us for the storms. And we'll see that Paul and Silas are able to praise God and sing the song of victory in the storm. And it's through their praise, it's through their worship, that God moves and God undertakes and does amazing things. So let's read in Acts 16 from verse 19 to verse 34. We carry on in the story uh, of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the early church. Actually, I'm going to pick it up from verse 16 because that picks up on the, the next sort of place in the story. We'll probably focus. Hallelujah, sister. Good to, good to have you with us, Dorothy. Uh, verse 16, Acts 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Now, this the literally a child. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit. I don't, I don't know if your translation gives you more information, but it should say the spirit of the python, or the python god, which is very significant. This is a passage that describes for us an encounter with evil in a very real and tangible way. She had the spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners. So child earning money for owners. What's, you know, how much is wrong with this? 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us. Luke is recounting the story. He's part of the, part of the group. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. What can be wrong with that? But, look at verse 18, she kept this up for many days. I don't think, I mean, we have our favorite piece of the music, but could you hear it nonstop for many days? Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the girl, did he speak to the girl? Was the girl the enemy? No, people are never the enemy. Let me repeat that. People are never the enemy. He turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Hallelujah for that deliverance. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews who are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Was that their main problem, their main concern? Not at all. Not at all. But this tactic is used to this day. Smoke screens, lies. The crowd joined in the attack because that's what crowds do. Crowds are really doff, eh? Mob hysteria. They joined in the, in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, and this is probably one of the floggings to which Paul refers as he recounts his journey with Jesus and the trials of his life. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Those stocks in themselves were extremely uncomfortable. You'd be sitting down on the, on the rough floor and your feet and your hands would be through the holes in these stocks at, at uncomfortable and awkward angles so that you were twisted and buckled and could never get comfortable. This is after a severe flogging. At about midnight, Paul and Silas were feeling very sorry for themselves and handing in, preparing to hand in their letters of resignation. <laughs> Not. What on earth are they doing at midnight? They were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Well, they didn't have much choice, did they? Whether they wanted to or not. I, I, I imagine that, you know, prison was a pretty grimy, dungy place, but the acoustics could have been pretty good. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, 
there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. These were buildings that were built with thick foundations, thick walls. The foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Woohoo! The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That's what he would have, he would have faced execution for failure of his duty anyway. So he decided just to, you know, avoid all the ceremony and just get on with it. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. I would have shouted, stick it in your liver and twist it five times. Don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights. It was obviously load shedding. He called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Hang on, this is the jailer. He rushes in and falls trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, aren't they prisoners? Now they're sir. What must I do to be saved? They replied, here's our pastor's number, phone him. He's really good at this. No, they, they were ready. They were ready. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household, everyone who's old enough to understand and hear and believe, including slaves, extended family. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, so this is after midnight, at that hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Isn't this the guy that inflicted those wounds? Ordered that they be severely flogged. He washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. But that's not all. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy. Why? Well, good question. Here it is. Because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. The next verse starts with the next date, so we'll hold it over to next time. But we're going to look in this section of Scripture and draw out some truths that must, we must apply to our lives so that we can sing the song of victory in the storm that we're facing, whatever storms we will face in the future, because those are a given in the Christian life. We shouldn't be surprised when we face trials and challenges and hardships and loss. We should be horrified at how badly we respond to these things. So let's start off by recognizing that the spiritual battle is real. Not just thousands of years ago, not just in some remote part of Africa, but here where we are, Every day, the spiritual battle is real. What does Paul say? We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers of this dark age. That's why we must be armed and ready. 
with the armor of God, which is the same as walking in the Spirit. It's just described in a different way in Galatians 5. The spiritual battle is very real. And if we don't recognize that, we are going to walk into ambushes. We're going to be unprepared. We're going to be sitting ducks. Now, this doesn't mean that we look for a demon behind every bush and we give Satan credit for everything that goes wrong because he's not that good. He's not that creative. So don't, Christians, stop doing free advertising for Satan. You know, you blame the devil for everything. Everything is a spiritual attack, and it's the devil, it's the devil. And sometimes it's just my sin. Sometimes it's just my disobedience. And people are in bondage to darkness, whether they're involved in, you know, open satanic activity, whether they're atheists, agnostics, whether they're intellectuals that deny the existence of God. There's only two kingdoms in the world. Kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. Somebody said there's no demilitarized zone, there's no neutral ground. Jesus said, You're either for me or against me. So this poor child was in bondage many times over. Know nothing about her, and we don't know what happened to her. I'd like to think she was taken in and given a home and cared for. But we're not told anything about her other than that she is delivered from this hideous bondage and slavery. And the moment she's free, she's literally free because now the, the hatred of her owners, her past owners, her former owners, turns towards Paul and Silas. And she's kind of lost. I don't know where, what happens to her. But she was possessed by this python god who was a heinous evil in the world, not just then, but now. The snake, you know, my grandfather used to say, I'm sorry if you keep snakes and stuff, um, I'll pray for you, uh, but my grandfather used to say the only good snake is a dead snake. Um, and the snake is a, is a symbol throughout the world and throughout time for sexual immorality and evil. I don't know why so many people have snakes tattooed on their bodies. I mean, you can't rub that out, eh? But people are obsessed with snakes and dragons and chutters, you know, all these chochos. Like, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? Why do you want to look like a walking subway, in any case? But, I mean, each to his own. But the snake is a, the snake is a, a violent symbol of evil and depravity. And, and she was possessed with, with this evil. See, I mean, this is, this is horrific. And as I've said before, the big problem in South Africa and in Africa is ancestral worship and animism, and people are in bondage to this. They're caught between two worlds, and they are victims of deceit. They're not our enemies. You know that not even Hamas is our enemy. Do I agree with them? No. Is it violent? No. Should it be punished? Yes. But those people are not our enemies. They are victims of the enemy. And what we should be praying for, by the way, in the Middle East? Stop, please. Stop using Israel as your hermeneutic for the end times. It's just, it doesn't work like that. If you didn't understand anything about that statement, take Matt for coffee and I'll explain it. And if you want to know more, take Matt for a steak. You'll have my undivided attention.
But stop, stop that. Stop, stop, stop. What we should be praying for in the Middle East is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is made up of Arabs and Jews and many others. How many Christians, as we watch the horrors unfolding of these atrocities, are praying for the, our brothers and sisters? Or are we taking sides? We should be praying for the church in the Middle East. And there are beautiful, you won't, it won't be on the news, on main media, but you can find it if you really want to. There are churches in the Middle East, in Israel, where there are Arab and Jewish Christians who love each other, who pray for their people, and who live out the love of Jesus. That should be our focus. Forget about the rest. Don't be deceived by the evil one. Don't be distracted by man-made ideas. Focus, keep the main thing the main thing here. And pray for your brothers and sisters who are called by God's grace, by God's wisdom in this time to be salt and light. They need our prayer support. At least. But that's the best we can do. So take your focus off CNN and Fox News and whatever else and pray for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Middle East. And pray that the knowledge of the glory of God covers the Middle East and the world as the waters cover the sea. We are distracted by so many things. UFOs and Bigfoot and Bitcoin and World Cups. And yeah, you stayed up late last night. The 8 o'clock service... I want to tell you, I'm going to tell on the 8 o'clock service. They were pathetic this morning because they're all so dead tired. I'm going to send them all early to bed next weekend. We are so distracted. But spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare happens on many different levels. When we try to, what happens when we try to pray or read our Bibles at home? Everything else happens. Isn't that amazing? It's no coincidence. What happens when you get ready for church? Something goes wrong. The garage door won't open. You know, the car won't start. Tires flat. Kid pukes on you just before you're leaving. It, you know, it's always like that. Just prepare for it. If you can't clean up soon, just sit outside. We'll send you some coffee. But don't let these things distract you from getting here because we're called not to forsake the gathering together. And, and just like the roaring lion, that's how Satan's described, seeking whom he may devour. He looks for the stragglers. He looks for those having trouble and he go after us. So if you wander out of the pack, out of the body, out of the family, you're far more prone to spiritual oppression and attack. So don't limit, don't alienate yourself. Don't skip church. Be here. Don't, whatever it costs, it's supposed to be a sacrifice anyway. But we need to prioritize these things because the war is real. Now, we were taught and we were held to it when we were in the military that the, the punishment for, for crimes are different in times of peace and times of war. If you sleep on duty in times of peace, you know, you're going to regret it. It's really going to ruin your day. But if you do that in time of war, you are really in for the high jump. 
And we are engaged. The spiritual battle is real. So why are we sleeping on duty? Why are we so easily distracted? Why are we so obsessed with so many things that just don't matter? I watched a, a little video yesterday. It was so good. She said, like, how many of us know our grandfather, the name of our grandfather's father? You might. Good for you. But, you know, how, how, who's going to know my name in 100 years' time? None of us will be here. I hope you're not planning to be here in 100 years' time. It's, it's not all it's cracked up to be, okay? So, but, and the things that eat us alive and really work us up and destroy our joy, what are they going to mean in 100 years' time? But we'll be looking back on our life from the perspective of God's eternal glory living in his presence. And I'm telling you, sometimes we're going to be like, oh, my goodness grief. That was important. That was a thing. Let's not be distracted. Let's not be distracted. The war is real. And that's not, I'm not warmongering. I'm not fearmongering. I'm stating a fact. We need to be vigilant. We need to be aware. But praise God for the next truth that comes out of the text and the witness of Paul and Silas and the others. The supernatural witness is unavoidable. Because as we stay faithful to Jesus, He will do His work. He will do His work. He will reach. We're cracked pots. We're broken. We're fallen and broken. He knows that. And he uses us for his glory. And the beautiful thing about that is that it's blatantly obvious, you know, when God uses us, that it's all about God and not about us. We don't want to draw any attention to ourselves because it's not about us. It's not a popularity contest. We're serving the King of Kings. So look at this situation now. They're in prison. They've been severely flogged. They're in these stocks. They're, they're bleeding and broken. They're in severe pain. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've ever got banged on the head. It's, imagine getting thumped on the head over and over. And the whole of their bodies, broken and bruised. And what's their response to that? Prayer and Praise. At about verse 25, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They weren't complaining. They weren't whinging. They were singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. There's the witness. You see, the, when we look at the story, when we take a step back and look at the story, we realize when we see the events that unfold that they had to be in prison. God had a divine appointment set up for them. And they had to be in there, and they had to be prisoners in there in order for God's purpose to be accomplished. I don't know if you've ever been in prison. I'm not asking you to put up your hand, okay? Or you've ever visited anyone in prison. I've visited people in prison. Um, I've been uh, Deep Sluit, Sun City, they call it, a couple of times, Leocorp, um, Pretoria Central, I've been on death row in Pretoria Central. Not me personally, but um, I've been there. I walked right past the gallows, the death chamber, to get to see someone. Um, the day I went, 
you know, it was, it's not a pleasant experience. And um, they take your ID book, they take your possessions, they take everything off you. Um, and, and then you start going through gates, big thick gates, and they all slam shut and get locked behind you. It's one of the most intimidating, horrible experiences. And by that time, we're about four or five gates in. And I remember just saying, oh, Lord, please get me out of here. I don't want, I don't hope there's no prison riot or some nut running around. So we went to, to death row and, and we passage opened into a sunny little courtyard with lovely green grass. And off both sides of the courtyard are, are a few doors. I can't remember how many. Maybe three or so on each side. And I was directed to where I'd be and I walked in and there are two, uh, two places, two visitors, two prisoners visited in each one of those cubicles, partitions and all of all of those things. Some of you might remember the name. On the right, on the left was the guy who was going to visit. On the right was Baron Stratum. David Wolf, the guy who killed people in cold blood in Church Street in Pretoria. Um, that was interesting. But you're in there. But it's still relatively easy to do prison ministry. But to be in prison, severely flogged, and broken so that the gospel can spread and the church, this brand, remember this brand new little church in Philippi. We saw last week how it started, meeting ladies by the river, Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to receive the Lord, to receive the gospel, and the church started meeting in her house. The Lord's adding to his church through all of these events. I've got to ask some difficult questions here. Are we willing to pay the price? Whatever that price may, might be so that the gospel can spread. Don't answer too quickly. You know, I want to answer that really. But don't answer that one too quickly. Are we willing to pay the price, whatever it might be, in order that the gospel spreads? How do we react in our own lives when the doo-doo hits the fan and things go wrong? When, when evil is done against me, when, when people do things to you and to me, what, what is our, do we react or respond? They're two very different things. Do I react by seeking vengeance or deliverance or do I respond by saying, Lord, take your glory? In this situation, it doesn't matter what people say about me. It doesn't matter what people think about me. Because hallelujah, it's not about me anyway. But Lord, take your glory. That should be our response. I remember, it's just so vivid to me, because it's one of the times I got it right. And it's, that's amongst many times when I got it wrong. Our sons were much smaller. And one of them, here on Friday night at youth, ran through a glass door. The ones that are open onto the quad. Uh, and his face was cut from his nose, right across his cheek. 
that was that was bad. We it was a long weekend, of course. It's always Friday night on a long weekend, you know, of course. And uh, our GP, a dear friend of ours, helped us find a plastic surgeon. She found 14 plastic surgeons in Joburg. None were available. The first one had just come out of surgery, out of theater, and was at home, just got home. We went through this whole list, and then my son's face, uh, I mean, potential major disfigurement. I remember saying, Daddy, my face is going to be different. And he's right, it would have been. And the first surgeon phoned back and says, have you found anybody yet? And we said, no. He said, I'll meet you at Santon Clinic in 20 minutes. And he took my boy into theater and did a miracle. Did a, worked a miracle. You won't even, if you don't know what's happened to my son, you won't know which one it is because you won't be able to see the scar. It was an absolute miracle. But I remember sitting there in that, in that hospital room and it just been wheeled into the theater. And I was filled with an overwhelming desire and need just to fall on my knees and say, take your glory, Lord. He's in your hands. I didn't pray for a good outcome. I, didn't, I, didn't, I just said, take your glory. That's one of the times I got it right. Many times I've got it wrong. But we need to seek the glory of God in our lives because we're called and supernaturally enabled to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we understand that and when we embrace that, God moves. Remember, He inhabits our praise. And so you, let me give you the answer. So next time you ask, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening? So that you can be the witness God's called you to be. That's all we need to know. The rest of the details above our pay grade anyway. But just know. You're in this situation. You're in this trial. You're in this storm. So that you can be the witness, the salt and the light that God has called you to be. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Because that's what it's about. And please God, and it's a risky prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. You're handing over the keys. Please God, use me. Use us. So that the gospel spreads. Through our homes, our communities, across this country and this continent and around the world. Whatever that means for us. If we're not willing to say that, and I don't say it lightly, but the problem is, see, I prayed that prayer a long time ago. I can't take it back. I can't renege on that now. But we need to be able to pray that from our heart because the supernatural witness of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is unavoidable. So there they are. And that reminds me as I was Preparing this text, it reminds me of one of the many stories I read in an amazing book called The Insanity of God. If you haven't read it, get it for yourself for Christmas. 
the ins- get it now, the insanity of God. The author is a guy called Nip. Nip. Ripkin. Nick, you see. Nick Ripkin. How are you supposed to say that? Say that three times fast. You won't get it right. Nick Ripkin. And the problem is that's a pseudonym. It's not even his real jolly name because he's involved in the church in Africa and in Somalia and in the and in the Soviet, former Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, and so he wants to protect the people to whom he ministers and not cause problems uh, by exposing his identity. But he tells amazing stories, the insanity of God, because the stuff God does is so crazy. But it's so cool. So he tells a story of, of, of a believer in the former Soviet Union, and there's, there's, there's current stories and, and stories out of uh, previous previous. Um, times. He tells the story of this, this, this Christian. He's in prison with a bunch of hardened, violent, you know, murderers and all kinds of people in the cell block. And um, people are at this prison are regularly executed and they have, they have placed this, the execution, the place of execution in the line of sight for the guys in the prison cells. And it's a big big like pole in the ground and they just chain the guys to the pole and, and sometimes flog them to death, sometimes shoot them. Um, and so they saw every one of, you know, of those executions. And this guy, this Christian, he decided, I'm going to praise God every single day. True story. I'm going to praise God every single day. And so he would sing hymns every day in his cell at the top of his lungs. And they hurled abuse at him. They swore at him. They threw stuff at him. You know, but he wouldn't shut up. He was going to praise God. He was going to praise God. And he did it every single day. And the abuse was unbelievable. He was told by the wardens if he didn't stop singing, they were going to drag him out there to the, the execution spot. He carried on singing. So one day they come to get him. And they handcuff him and they start leading him past the other cells. And one of the prisoners starts singing one of the hymns. I mean, they had them memorized by now because he sang them every day. It's kind of like Paul and Silas here. One of the prisoners started singing one of the one of the hymns. And slowly, it's a true story. It's wonderful. Slowly, more and more, the prisoners joined in until all these hardened criminals who weren't Christians at all were singing these hymns of praise to God at the top of their lungs because of the witness of this one crazy Christian. And they started throwing stuff in protest against his execution. And his life was spared. His life was spared. But why did they sing? Why did the other prisoners sing? Why would they think of doing that? That's not a trick question. Because I heard him singing every single day. He was singing the songs of victory in the storm. And he had been threatened with death over and over. I'm here for Jesus. It doesn't matter if I live or die. What does Paul say? To live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm going to sing for Jesus. Ended up saving his life, but that's not why he did it. But that's the power. That's the unavoidable witness. When we take Jesus seriously, he inhabits the praises of his people. And he moves in powerful ways. Ways ways you could not imagine. You've got to read the insanity of God. You've got to read it. It's unbelievable. And the things that this missionary couple went through, they lost a child in Africa. 
and I felt like giving up. Who wouldn't? I've been through much less, and I felt like giving up many times. But they carried on. And here's another glorious truth that comes out of this text, and I trust that you'll be able to embrace it and, and apply it to your life. Because if it doesn't count in the storm, it doesn't count any other time. Here's the truth. The submitted life, submitted to God, submitted to the reign of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, the reign of God in His righteousness. And all these things will be added. The submitted life always thrives. It doesn't thrive in, according to worldly standards. You're not going to get the new car or the new job or the new house. You might. You might. But that's just because God is crazy good. And so he, he, We live in a house we have no right living in. I'll tell you right now. It, it's just God's glorious sense of humor. I'm like the butt of God's joke because I have no right living in this house. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm all for prosperity, but biblical prosperity. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. In God's way, in God's time. But seek him. The submitted life always thrives. And again, praise and prayer are such powerful, powerful weapons. Can you and I sing in the storm? Can we sing in the storm? Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. Good old Saint Spurgeon. Any fool can sing in the day. <laughs> they weren't worried about being politically correct or woke in the 1800s. Any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he or she who can sing when there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And so God adds to his church. And so when you go to read, remember when you're reading in Acts and you come across churches uh, mentioned like Philippi, go read Philippians. It's 30 years after this. But the church... The church of Philippi that stands 30 years later with their own challenges, with their own problems, with their own brokenness, but it stands, was, was, was founded on the blood of Paul and Silas. It was Tertullian, somebody help me out, I couldn't remember who it was. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's how God chooses to work. I used to have a big problem with this. Now I've stopped arguing because what am I going to do? Win that argument. I just need to get on board. And as Romans 12 was read to us this morning, we need to lay down our lives as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. And so this whole... This whole town, this whole city is transformed. The church is strengthened because of the faithful, sacrificial service of God's people. We could, we could, as we start to wrap it up, we could speculate a bit, well, and it must be true, the jailer was obviously ready to get saved because he didn't know that, but he was ready. That's why they had to get into that prison. 
But what about people today? You know, we look at people sometimes, and I don't know about you, but sometimes we say, oh, that person, <laughs> they'll never get saved. Ah, yeah, we've said it. How do we know? Well, we salvation belongs to our God. It's not our business. He can save whoever he wants. And when he saves, I've seen witness again, a, a beautiful testimony. Um, there was an Instagram, this, this ex-ISIS member, weeping as he shares his testimony that he encountered the God of love and forgiveness, the Lord Jesus Christ. God appeared to him and said, I forgive you. And he said, we know, as we knew as Muslims, that you know, God, one of the names for Allah is forgiving, but you only find out if he is or not on the day of judgment. Now that's a bit dodgy. But he said, but God spoke to me. Jesus spoke to me and said, I forgive you now. And you can live in that forgiveness. And here's this hardened ex-ISIS member rubbing his eyes as the tears run down his face because he's overwhelmed by the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. That's our God. So don't ever judge a book by its cover. Never say never about someone getting saved. Just keep praying. Just keep praying and be who God wants you to be. And as I pray for people's salvation, my dear Jewish friends and others, am I willing to bleed for that? Am I willing to bleed for that? Because if I'm not willing to bleed for that, maybe I shouldn't be praying. Let's focus on the Lord's victory in our lives. And as we close this message, I'm going to read just one more passage from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, because we're talking about singing the song of victory in the storm. The victory, by the way, is done and dusted. Jesus is victorious. He's overcome. And we live in that victory today and every day as we go through the storm. Ephesians 4, 7. And eight. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, we celebrate the ascension every year. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. If you go back and unpack that picture, that is a victory march from, from ancient times. And God shares with us the spoils of his victory. And that's his grace and his goodness and his peace and his presence and his power and his promises. But the only time we're going to really experience those, taste and see that the Lord is good. When are we going to taste? When we step up. And when we sign up and we say, yes, Lord, whatever it takes, whatever it costs me, may I live my life to the glory of God and the spreading of the gospel, the building of your church and the extension of your kingdom. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer this morning? Lord, you speak deep into our hearts. Your word is truly the sword that separates bone and marrow, soul and spirit. 
we stand before you completely vulnerable, completely open, completely transparent, and you know our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you know and understand and love each life here, each one hearing this message. Lord, I pray for those who have stopped singing because it just seems to be too much. Sometimes we wander away from you. We take a time out from Jesus and we wander away because we just can't cope with what's going on. But Lord, you've promised never to leave us. You've called us to take a stand. You've called us to shed blood for the glory of your name. You've called us to give ourselves, lock, stock, and barrel, to the cause of Christ and the salvation of the lost. Lord, may we not be distracted. May we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Be faithful in praying for your church wherever she's found. And may many leave here and go into the new week that starts today able to sing again the song of victory because of who you are and what you're doing in each life for your glory. Amen.